As was already mentioned, uh, the sermon today is going to be on Psalm 127, so you can turn there in your Bibles. Psalm 127. The title of my sermon is Our Dependence Upon God. Our Dependence Upon God. So to begin, let's read this psalm. Psalm 127. The title is A Song of Ascent. Of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. This is the seventh of 15 consecutive psalms that are titled A Song of Ascent, or A Song of Degrees, depending on your translation. They all have one thing in common, in that they are short in length. However, there are many different opinions and ideas about why or for what purpose these songs were written. John Calvin thought it had to do with them being sung in a higher key, with the musical notes rising or ascending in succession. Some, like Martin Luther, suggest that the priests and Levitical singers would sing these songs while climbing the steps of the temple or while standing in some elevated place. However, the most common interpretation is that they were sung by the throngs of pilgrims ascending the mountains up to Jerusalem each year at Passover. Thus it is believed that they were grouped together and all given this title in the Psalter. I should add that the words of some of these 15 psalms lend themselves to this view. An example would be Psalm 122, which begins with the words, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. We get a little glimpse into what that annual pilgrim, pilgrimage must have looked like in Luke chapter 2, where Jesus was separated from his parents, and they had great difficulty locating him because of the vast throngs of people. It's not hard to imagine these pilgrims singing psalms together as they excitedly made their way up to Jerusalem to celebrate God's salvation and preservation. Regardless what is meant by this title, this particular psalm's brevity and pithiness would have lent itself to being easily memorized and widely used. You also notice that the authorship of this psalm is attributed to Solomon. There are several things in this psalm that naturally connect it with Solomon. You could say that it has his fingerprints all over it. First, the grammatical structure of these sentences is very similar to much of the book of Proverbs so much so that you wouldn't think it strange at all if you found these sentences in the book of Proverbs. 
Secondly, we know from 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, that Solomon was the author of many songs. And I'll quote that. It says, he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So it shouldn't surprise us then that a few would appear in Scripture. Psalm 72 is also credited to him. And of course, the Song of Solomon constitutes one whole book of the Bible. Thirdly, in verse 2, we have the Hebrew word yadid, which is translated beloved. That wouldn't seem so remarkable until you consider that this was the same Hebrew word that God used when he gave Solomon his own special name. You see, Solomon was the name that his parents gave him at birth, and it's still the name that we know him by today. However, we are told in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24, that, and I'm quoting, he, Bathsheba, bore a son, and he, that is David, called his name Solomon. It goes on to say, Now the Lord loved him, that's Solomon, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he, and I believe this was probably David, called his name Yedidiah because of the Lord. The reason this is significant is because Solomon was not the first son to be born to David and Bathsheba. Prior to the birth of their first son, Nathan the prophet had also visited David with a much different message. He said that that child who is born to you shall surely die. And that is exactly what happened, despite David's pleading with God for the child's life. Now, in the case of their second son, God again sends Nathan the prophet to assure them of his love for this son. And this prompts David to give his son a second name, Yedidiah, which means Yedi, or beloved of the Lord. The fourth fingerprint of Solomon that we find in this psalm is the repeated use of the word vain in the first two verses. This re reminds us of a theme in another book that Solomon authored called Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, he used the word vanity, at least 33 times, and it is a distinctive term in Scripture that most people immediately associate with Solomon. That concludes my thoughts on the title and the authorship of the psalm. In terms of an overview and general outline of the passage, it's clearly divided into two parts. The first two verses constitute part one, which is about work. Part two consists of verses three to five, which are about family. At first glance, these two parts may not appear to share much in common. However, when you get below the surface, there are some common threads and unifying themes that run throughout this psalm. First, there is an overarching theme that the success of any human enterprise, whether it be new construction, preservation of existing construction, or raising a family wholly depends upon the help and blessing of God. 
Along with that, one of the underlying thoughts that permeates this psalm is the uselessness of all human effort which does not rely on the will, power, and goodness of God. Secondly, in looking for unity between the two parts, there are two senses in which the Hebrew word bayith, which is translated house, is used. This makes for some interesting and well-known wordplay in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a very good example of this, and I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5. This again is the prophet uh, speaking to David, and he says, or God says, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? There's that word, house. And of course, we know in the context here that that is speaking about the temple that David desired to build for God. It's talking about a physical structure. And if we go down to verse 11 of the same chapter, The last sentence in verse 11 says, Also, in addition to that, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Now what's God talking about there? Going to make David a physical structure, a house? No, he goes on to explain in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you and will come for who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So the house there is being spoken of there. The house that God's going to give David is a family dynasty of kings. It's his family, your seed, he says, that will come from your body. Then, in verse 13, he, that's David, shall build a house for my name. Again, he's reverting back to the physical structure of the temple again. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so you can see how that uh, word is used in different ways. Solomon would have been aware of this homonym in the Hebrew language, and it's likely that he used it in verse 1 with both ideas in mind. First, he must have been thinking of the construction of the temple, a vast undertaking that with God's blessing came to be the defining architectural element of his legacy. Secondly, he would have been very conscious of the fact that he was the second in a dynastic line or house of kings that God had promised to his father David. Verse 1 says then, unless the Lord builds the house, They labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord actively participates in the enterprise by giving us his blessing, his aid, and his power, all our human efforts are in vain. There's a good illustration of this kind of vanity in Genesis 11, where we have an account of what may have been the most ambitious building project that was ever undertaken. Nimrod and his cohorts decided to build a city with a tower as its centerpiece. 
The reasons that they gave for doing this was for personal glory and to avoid being scattered across the earth. Their goal was to maintain unity and strength against God. It says that God came down to look at the project, and this is what he said in Genesis chapter 11. He said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Thus we have a situation where God's opposition to the building project rendered the efforts of those constructing it to be in vain. In the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the fifth chapter is entitled, Of Divine Providence. In the second paragraph of that chapter, there's a discussion about first and second causes. This verse is a good illustration for this doctrine. And I'm going to read a quote from uh, J. Gresham Machen's book, The Christian View of Man, where he uh, elaborates on this doctrine. It's a little lengthy, but bear with me. He says, God is the first cause, but the forces of nature and free actions of personal beings whom God has created are second causes. And it is extremely important, if we would be true to the Bible, that the existence of secondary causes should not be denied. Only it is important to observe that the two causes are not on the same plane. They are not coordinate but one is completely subordinate to the other. In every event in the natural world, God has completely accomplished what he willed to accomplish. He is not limited in any way by the forces of nature or by the free actions of his creatures. They act truly, but they truly act only as he has determined they, they shall act. The correct way, therefore, of expressing the relationship between secondary causes and God, the great first cause, is to say that God makes use of second causes to accomplish what is in accordance with his eternal purposes. Second causes are not independent forces whose cooperation he needs, but they are means that he employs exactly as he will. So if we read this verse then with that in mind, we could read it this way, and I'm going to add a few words. Except the Lord, who is the first cause, build the house, they who are the second cause, labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord, who is the first cause, keep the city, the watchmen, who are the second cause, waketh but in vain. I would also like to give you an example of how this verse was understood and applied during our nation's founding. The following excerpt is from an address that Benjamin Franklin made to the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Keep in mind that Franklin was not known for his faith and piety, yet what I'm going to read was the general prevailing view of himself and our nation's founders at that time. And this is a quotation from his address. In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, that was the War of Independence. When we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for the divine protection. In this room was a, a room down in Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Constitutional Convention was held in the same room. 
He goes on to say, our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence. We owe this happy opportunity, I'm sorry, a superintending providence to in our favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity or happiness. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. It was 81 years at that point. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. I therefore beg leave to move, that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. Benjamin Franklin on June 28th of 1787. In this instance, Franklin legitimately applied the idea of a house uh, not to a physical structure, not even to a family, but to a nation, which is a political institution. goes on to say, In verse uh, 1, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. There's a logical progression in this verse. First, the building of a house is noted. Then he advances from the part, that is the house, to the whole, the city. Cities consist of many houses. Builders erect houses, but watchmen guard cities. We have an excellent illustration of this in the events recorded in Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar, the great-grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, was the king of Babylon. He was hosting a drunken orgy and using the gold and silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. A hand appeared and wrote some words on the wall, bringing great fear to Belshazzar. You probably remember how Daniel was called in and was able to interpret the message. This is what his interpretation was. He said, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And then it says, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. However, there is another part of this story that is not recorded in the Bible. 
But we know from other historical sources that the Medes and Persians did not or did take the city of Babylon that night in a very novel way that completely escaped the notice of the watchman until it was too late. Babylon was an incredibly strong fortified city. In its days, those uh, walls would have been considered impregnable and a prolonged siege, the only possible way to defeat it. However, Cyrus the Great and his engineers came up with a clever plan to divert the waters of the Euphrates River, which allowed the Persian army to enter the city through the hole in the wall that the Euphrates would normally have flowed through. Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, had this to say about the fall of Babylon, and I'm going to quote him. Hereupon the Persians, who had been left for the purpose at Babylon by the riverside, entered the stream, which had now sunk so as to reach about midway up a man's thigh, and thus got into the city. Had the Babylonians been apprised of what Cyrus was about, or had they noticed their danger, they would have never allowed the Persians to enter the city, but would have destroyed them utterly. For they would have made fast all the street gates which gave access to the river, and mounting upon the walls along both sides of the stream, would have caught the enemy as it were in a trap. But as it was, the Persians came upon them by surprise, And so took the city. Owing to its vast size of the place, the inhabitants of the central parts, as the residents at Babylon declare, long after the outer portions of the town were taken, knew nothing of what had happened. But as they were engaged in a festival, continued dancing and reveling until they learned about the capture. Such then were the circumstances of the first taking of Babylon. End of quote. That is what happened to Babylon. The Lord ceased to guard the city, and the sentries watched in vain. While the Persians walked in or waited in, as the case was here. On the other hand, what is the outcome when God does guard the city? 2 Kings 19 provides a good example of that. The context is a situation where Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is besieging Jerusalem during the reign of King Hezekiah. Naturally, Hezekiah is greatly alarmed and cries out to God for help. In response, God sent the prophet Isaiah with the following message to Hezekiah. 2 Kings 19, verses 32-36. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, the same way shall he return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people rose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed 
and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh. Without God, cities, communities, towns, and villages have no security. I'm sure that there were plenty of watchmen on Jericho's walls when they fell, but without God it was of no avail. The security of a city is not in its walls or its gates. In more modern times, it's not in its police force, surveillance cameras, alarm systems, or missile defense systems. The security of a city is in the hands of God, even though he may very well use secondary means like the things that I just mentioned. Verse 2 goes on to say, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Here the worker himself is in view. Whether he is building houses, guarding cities, running a business, farming, developing software, writing a book, or laboring at anything else that you can name, whether physical or mental in nature, this verse teaches us that the most laborious toil, if it is divorced from a reliance upon God, can bring only anxiety and weariness. In our culture, we have even developed expressions to describe this kind of futile activity. Phrases like the rat race, the hamster wheel, the vicious cycle, the daily grind, all refer to the idea of putting a lot of effort into something without getting much in return. It doesn't matter how early we rise or how late we stay up. If we are merely working for that which will decay or rust or burn, can be stolen, then we have nothing to look forward to but to eat the bread of sorrows. The word sorrows here carries the idea of care, anxiety, or trouble. I also want to emphasize that it's not wrong to rise early. We could prove that there's a great benefit in doing that. Solomon himself said as much many times in the book of Proverbs when he condemns slothfulness and commends diligence. An example of that would be Proverbs chapter 6, verse 9. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? This is clearly a situation where someone was sleeping too much. However, the point here is that merely rising early without his blessing will not secure what we hope to accomplish, for everything is still in the hand of God. Health, strength, clearness of mind, and success are all under his control. And though early rising may tend to produce all those, yet we are still not less dependent on God for success. This brings us to the second and more difficult part of the verse. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Apparently the Hebrew grammar here is difficult to understand and translate. However, most commentators agree that those who work in vain are being contrasted with those who work with God's favor and blessing. I will read now a quote from Albert Barnes that I think explains this idea well. He says, The meaning evidently is that God bestows sleep upon his people in some sense in which it is not bestowed on others or that there is, in regard to their case, something in which they differ from those who are so anxious and troubled, who rise so early for the sake of gain, who toil so late 
who eat the bread of care. The idea seems to be that there would be calmness, repose, freedom from anxiety or solicitude. God makes the mind of his beloved calm and tranquil, while the world around is filled with anxiety and restlessness, busy, bustling, and worried. Because of this calmness of mind and of their confidence in him, they enjoy undisturbed repose at night. They are not kept wakeful and anxious about their worldly affairs as other men are, for they leave all with God, and thus he gives his beloved sleep. End of quote. Jesus himself was a great example of this when he was able to sleep on a boat through a violent storm that had, that, uh, had his seasoned fishermen friends terrified. As I pointed out earlier, verse 3 brings us to the second and final part of this song. And we switch from the subject of work to that of family. Though I guess you could argue that the subject of work extends to this section as well, since raising a family is a lot of work. Once again, this section begins with a reminder of our dependence upon God for children. It says that they are a heritage from the Lord. The Bible is clear that God's sovereignty extends to every area of life. His sovereignty is given special emphasis in Scripture regarding the conception and birth of children. Eve clearly acknowledged this when she gave birth to her first child, Cain, when she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Same word there. We also have the stories of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Samson's parents, Elkanah and Hannah, the Shunammite woman, and in the New Testament, we have the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. These couples all had one thing in common. They were all childless until the Lord intervened and blessed them with children. In two of these cases with Sarah and Elizabeth, the births happened well past their normal childbearing years, which serves as an even greater example of God's sovereignty over conception. Here again, we have an interesting bit of wordplay with the Hebrew word that is translated children. This word is used 4,906 times in the Old Testament and is translated son most of those times. But it is also correctly translated children in many instances such as this one. The fascinating part is that this word is derived from the Hebrew word that is translated build in verse 1. Strong says that this word literally means a son as a builder of the family name. I want to point out that this verse is very countercultural. Unfortunately, a majority of Americans no longer view children as a heritage and a reward from the Lord. I know that sounds very shocking, but the numbers are clear and do not lie. We as a nation are murdering or tolerating the murder of around a three-quarter million babies per year. The womb, a place that was designed by God to be a place of safety and nourishment, has been made into an execution chamber. You might say, well, there's still 
a relatively amount of the population who are having abortions. But it's much worse than that. We are a nation who has democratically elected pro-abortion politicians to the highest offices in our land. For example, our president, Speaker of the House, and the Senate Majority Leader are all rabidly and unapologetically pro-abortion. Pew Research um, did a survey in May of 2021, and they said that today, a 59% majority of U.S. adults say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, while 39% think abortion should be illegal in all or most cases. When we compare those numbers with those who identify themselves as being Christians, the numbers are only slightly better. A 53% majority in the church thought that abortion should be legal, while 43% thought it should be illegal. So on one hand, you have a culture in whom a majority support the idea of killing infants in the womb. They don't want children, or they want the ability to dispose of them when they are inconvenient, too much work, or too expensive. They don't value children because they are viewed as a nuisance, a distraction, or an unwelcome responsibility. This verse stands against that prevailing view in our society. On the other hand, there are some dangers in placing too much value in children. You might react to that and say, how could we possibly overvalue children? The Bible indicates that anything we value more than God himself is an idol to us. That was the whole point of God's test to Abraham. God wanted to know if Abraham loved him more than his son Isaac. Abraham passed the test. But the real question for us is, do we pass the test? We must not idolize our children. Children cannot be the ultimate source of our happiness. Children cannot be made the center of our lives. God must be the center of our lives, and he must be the object of our adoration, not our children. Secondly, we place too much value on children if we think that God's will for every that it is God's will for everyone to have children. There are some godly Christian couples who will never be parents. We should never imply that they cannot live a happy, fulfilling, and God-pleasing life if they don't have children. Also, some are called to have uh, some are called to a single life without the opportunity to have children. And we should not suppose that they are any less blessed or useful to God. The Apostle Paul was a single man who knew Psalm 127 very well. And he went through the churches preaching the value of covenant children. Yet he could also recommend singleness for some as being an ideal way of service to God. In concluding uh, my remarks on verse 3, I want to point out that the Hebrew text here conveys the sense that children are a heritage belonging to the Lord rather than a heritage given by the Lord. In the second part of the verse, uh, the word translated reward carries the idea of it being a gift. Every child is a gift from God. 
It's not a debt that God owes us, but a gift of his grace. So on one hand, children are a gift from God, but on the other hand, they still belong to God. And we are simply given the responsibility of stewardship and caring for them like everything else that God gives us in this life. Solomon continues in verse 4 with a military metaphor. He says, children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. A warrior knows what to do with arrows, and when he is in battle, he is going to use them like his life depends upon it. Arrows are weapons that are aimed at enemies, as we will see in verse 5. However, there are a couple things that I'd like to note about the arrows themselves. First, arrows are formed. When a warrior needs more arrows, he can't simply walk into the woods and collect more arrows. They don't grow in trees. They are precision weapons that need to be carefully cut, shaped, weighed, and fletched. I used to be an archery hunter, so I know a bit about arrows. Children are no different. They need to be trained. They need shaping. They need to be straightened out sometimes. Secondly, when arrows are shot by the archer, they must be aimed at something. No one with any wisdom just wastes an arrow at random. He aims it at a target. Unfortunately, in the American church, that's exactly what is happening to many of our youth. They are aimless, unguided, and disillusioned. Many are traveling through life like an arrow shot at random, and they are missing the target. I've been following with some interest the research being commissioned by the Answers in Genesis organization. In his book, Already Gone, Ken Ham began sounding the alarm on the massive exodus of the younger generation in the American church. And this is not a quotation from his book, but from a blog post that he made. Uh, he said that in 2010, the Pew Research Center found millennial church attendance was down to 18%. In other words, of all the children raised in the church, only 18% were staying with the church. Now, he says, in 2018, data shows church attendance with the younger generations is down to 11.3%. He went on to say that the numbers are even worse since the pandemic. In other words, many young people left and didn't return. Why is this happening? The answers can be complex, but one of the simple reasons is that too many parents don't have a vision for their children to be like arrows launched at the enemy. The question that we need to answer is what do we as parents need to be doing if we don't want these statistics to be reflected in our families? There are many ways that we can answer that question. But I think this verse provides a good starting place. We need to embrace the idea that our children are arrows. But we also need to recognize that they weren't born arrows, but rather they need to be formed into arrows. Then when they have been formed into useful arrows, we need to, with their help and consultation, identify the target and aim them at it. We need to launch them as projectiles at the enemy. 
And just a brief comment on the last part of the verse, which says, so are the children of one's youth. I think this is pointing to the normal pattern of things in which children are generally given to parents in the earlier part of their lives. Given the enormous amount of work involved in raising children, Sarah and I have often reflected on the blessing in God's design for giving us our children when we were still relatively young. Verse, verse 5 says, Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. The question that often comes up in relation to this verse is, what constitutes a full quiver? The answer for that question is different for every family. God's sovereignty even extends to the size of one's quiver. Abraham and Sarah, Zacharias and Elizabeth, each had one child. Was their quiver full? Of course, the answer is yes. Their quivers were full because that is all God chose to put in them. Their sons, Isaac and John the Baptist, were arrows that had a greater impact on the world than all our families put together could ever hope to have. On the other end of the quiver spectrum, we have a man named Himan mentioned in 1 Chronicles 25. It says there, for God gave Heman 14 sons and three daughters. That's a total of 17 children. Did Heman have a full quiver? Yes, he did. He had a packed quiver, fuller than most of us could ever imagine. The point is that a full quiver is a qualitative term, not a quantitative term. We have some friends from our previous church who had uh, we had known uh, during their courtship and attended their wedding. Once married, they discovered that conception, humanly speaking, was unlikely, and they longed to have children, and we counseled and encouraged them to consider adoption. We lost regular contact with them in the years since, but recently he contacted me to let us know that they, they had just adopted a baby boy, and to thank us for our prayers and encouragement in that area. The reason that I bring this up is because I think it needs to be pointed out that even if God doesn't choose to give a couple biological children, he sometimes chooses to fill their quiver in a different way. It doesn't matter if it's foster children, adopted children, or stepchildren. These children are no less arrows in their hands. They can be used to build God's kingdom just as effectively as biological children. Finally, this verse concludes with the words, they shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. The gate of a Middle Eastern city was the place where the leading citizens of the city congregated, where business was conducted, where legal transactions were witnessed, and where litigation was adjudicated. It was the place where the elders of the city and the local magistrates sat. The picture that is given here is that of a man with adult sons who faces some type of local opposition. Here's a man whose reputation, possessions, or his life is being threatened in some way. Maybe he is faced with someone who is trying to take advantage of him and defraud him. 
happy is that man when he has adult sons in their prime on whose superior strength he can rely on in his time of need. Or happy is the family who have children who stand united with their parents and will protect them from harm. Whenever I read this passage, the mental picture that comes to my mind is that of a father standing outside his front door, shoulder to shoulder with his big menacing sons on either side of him like bodyguards. And they are just daring the enemy to advance and warning them that if they cross that red line, they will pay dearly for their mischief. Happy is the father or mother who have children who will stand by them to defend them in their family's honor. In conclusion, then, I want to read a short summary that Charles Spurgeon wrote to describe the content of this song. He said, God's blessing on his people as their one great necessity and privilege is here spoken of. We are taught here that builders of houses and cities, systems and fortunes, empires and churches, all labor in vain without the Lord. But under the divine favor, they enjoy perfect rest. Sons who are in the Hebrew called builders are set forth as building up families under the divine blessing, under the same divine blessing to the great honor and happiness of their parents. It is the builder's psalm. Every house is built by some man, but he who built all things is God, and unto God be praise. End of quote. I'll close then with those words, and, and um, uh, we'll just bow our heads for a word of prayer, then I'll invite Mark to come up and close the service. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word. Thank you, Lord. Help us to be um, builders, um, builders of families, builders of, of uh, churches, builders of nations, Lord, uh, whatever it is that you have called a, upon us to build, we pray that we could do so with your divine blessing, with your approval. Father, we thank you, Lord, for um, the families here at, at Gospel of Grace Community Church, and we pray your blessing on each one as we go forth this week. Lord, we pray for your protection and blessing in Jesus' name.